suppose we'll hear stories about addiction. We might. Oh. Stories about recovery, too. Mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are on the air with me, Nancy Adair, the host and creator of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores, the podcast that brings you stories from the light side and the dark side of both addiction and recovery. Each week this season, in season three, all artists who are in recovery, and today is no exception. We have a brilliant artist with us, a glass blower. His name is David Jacobson, and I'm so glad to have him with us today. Oh, thanks so much, Nancy. I'm really glad to be here. This is a real treat for me. David, I know that it was a consideration of yours to talk about recovery as well as your artistic expression as a glass blower. Where does the hesitation come from? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I I, I, I protect my anonymity very closely, uh, mainly because you know that is the it is anonymous is in every program's name, uh, and I find that. I was told early on that once you break someone's anonymity, you can't take it back. I can't say, oh, listen, hey, uh, please wipe your brains clean of everything I just told you. So I really respect it. And, and just for whatever reason, just uh, it helps me stay safe and it helps me to be more open, feel protected. And so in coming on this podcast, I'm obviously breaking my anonymity. And I did discuss it with people, you know, in my recovery team. And, and you know, it came out to like, well, who's your audience? <laughs> it's people in recovery. So, so there's really not too much of a risk as far as I was concerned. And plus, another piece is that I've been around long enough to know that uh, I've never gotten burned for things happen for, uh, and, you know, I, I feel I feel okay about it. That's great to know. And I know that when we've talked before this, you also were willing to break your anonymity to be on a podcast based on recovery, because it's about spreading that message. And so I agree with you that most of the audience and the people listening are people who are in recovery. They're also a group of people who there's a new term going around are sober curious, you know, they're curious about what would recovery look like for them, whether they come into an anonymous program or not. Um, Oh, interesting. I've never heard that. I've never heard that. Yeah, it was a woman that I interviewed from uh, Bali who teaches yoga, um, who that was the first time I heard the term sober curious. Yeah, well, that's it. You know, you never know. I've learned in in the program. I never know who's going to hear this. I never know who I'm going to benefit. You know, my my intentions are all positive and to be of service any way I can. And I, and I enjoy sharing how much my life has changed uh, for the better. All right. So let's get a little comparison going. <laughs> what was life like yeah. before? And yeah. now, because I agree with you, there is nothing, you know, when they say in the halls of recovery, they say this is a life second to none. I've really experienced that. Uh, the month of November is my sobriety month. And so I'm coming up on 43 years this year. And it's so, my life keeps getting better. And people are very uh, surprised by that. 
that you can spend lots and lots of time in recovery and it's, it gets better still. Yeah, well, that's a great point. I, and I totally agree with you. I, too, I've been in, I came in in 1986. And right now I'm in the prime of my life as far as I'm concerned. I got the best years ahead of me. Uh, I, and that's, you know, nothing short of miraculous when I didn't want to live past 34. You know, I came into the program when I was 34. I'm 71 now. And uh, life was hell. I was miserable. It was uh, everything that you hear about. I was miserable, depressed, hopeless, desperate, uh, really a dark person, and at the same time, struggling as hard as much as, much as I could to not let anybody know that. Yeah. I put, all, I put a lot of effort into trying to look good, sound good, and I found out I really wasn't doing a very good job. <laughs> well, for the people listening, they can't see the two of us, but I think I just learned that you're 71, I'm 67. I think we do look good, you know? <laughs> we do. No, you're like, absolutely right. And I, and I take a lot of uh, pride in that and feel very, very fortunate, feel very, very lucky. Uh, I'm healthy. Uh, you know, I'm very active. I'm still creating in my studio as much as I want. Uh, I travel. You know, I've gotten all the benefits, all the promises uh, are, are definitely in my life today. Now, you're but, you also know, doing something that uh, not many artists accomplish, which is making a living doing your creative expression yeah yeah and that's i think that's a big thing and that's the other reason why i'm glad to be on this podcast share that you know it is possible i i grew up in a household where being an artist you know the starving artist syndrome uh you can't make a living as an artist my parents kept saying yeah it's great you're an artist but what are you going to do for a living so i never got any support in uh going after this but uh, you know, like any of any of us, it's in me. It's I really have no choice. I'm creative. And before Glass, I don't think you know this, I was a full-time cartoonist. That's another career of mine. Um, when I was down in New York, which is where I'm from, uh, once I got out of college, uh, I studied glass and college after a very long, circuitous route of seven years as an active drunk. And so uh, when I quit that of glass, I said, there's no way I can make a living at that. So I'm going to get into something really sure-fired, uh, make, a, make a big buck bunch of money. And I, be I said, I'm going to become a cartoonist. And so my parents hysterically uh, just rolled their eyes like, what are you talking about? So I started on this um, career as a freelance cartoonist. And fortunately, over the years, I then ended up having a staff position at a newspaper in Westchester, New York, where I had a daily cartoon for 18 years. And with that, I always wanted to be a full-time glassblower from college. So there was a 17, 18-year gap between when I finished graduating college and when I started glass again. And that was on a part-time basis. That was 1994 in New York. I was working full-time at the newspaper. And on weekends, I would go to a glass studio in Brooklyn, New York, public access, and take lessons and continue to learn how to be a glassblower. That was in 1994. I then became a full-time glassblower in 2013 up here in Maine. So what I like to always emphasize is I am not an overnight success. <laughs> I am not. <laughs> I'm I not a, a child. I had an interview with uh, not an artist, but a life coach um, who said I'm an overnight success 10 years in the making. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that, and that, I think that's part and parcel of uh, the gift of recovery as well, that without it, there's no way I'd be here talking to you right now. It's plain and simple. It, it, it just never would be. Uh, I never would have had the faith. I never would have had the bliss 
discipline, the enlightenment, the hope, uh, just the tools and the steps of the program to help change my entire way of thinking and my entire personality to learn that it really isn't about the talents, the inside job for all of us. I think it's in any career, any any action. I agree and disagree with that one both. Um, I do believe it's an inside job. And I do a lot as a therapist and life coach, a lot of talking about that inner critic, which I think is if from any industry or career, the artist has one of the the most vicious inner critics going. Mm-hmm. I, you I, know, I agree with you. And I I think my own sense of why that is, is because we're pouring our souls out. It's like being like, I named one of my quilts in a series that I've just finished that's um, called Soul Naked. Uh, Because I I think it really is about that. It's, you know, like you put it all out there for everybody to see. It's so artists, well, they say this about addicts, that addicts are brighter than average and have a more sensitive nervous system. Sure. Sure. And I would also add are probably more creative. Yeah, you know, I, I don't, and again, I don't know if that's really true or not, but uh, I know that the addicts that I do know are creative and, and uh, you know, have a lot of talents and such. Um, and I'm sure there are people that aren't addicts that just are just as sensitive and are able to deal with stuff. You know, I really don't know. I just know that all of those traits are us, are me. I, I definitely have been way too sensitive or overly sensitive definitely know I am creative um, and I'm just you know learning into coming into that as a result of recovery accepting that believing mm. still struggle with it it's not it's not a daily basis anyway you struggle to believe in your own talent oh absolutely yeah you know the whole imposter syndrome situation I don't think that ever really goes away I just I'm learning skills to not let it dominate me and and, and I can say that it really is a you know, there isn't a day that does, that goes by where I don't have some sort of anxiety here or not as good as. Uh, and yet, again, because of recovery and just time, I don't allow it to cripple me like it did in the past. You know, I would always before before recovery, I would hit a, a hard spot. Let's say, let's say, in creating something or any of my other ideas I had about how my life would go, I hit some kind of roadblock of indecision or don't know how to figure this out, and I would say, oh, well. I guess I'm not supposed to be doing this in my life. Well, I guess that's what that means. And just whoop, take a big detour and find something else until I came up against a struggle. And then I go, well, I guess I'm not supposed to be doing that. Let's see something else. You know, I had no uh, fortitude. No, I just, I, I gave up because I just didn't believe in myself, didn't believe in my abilities. Yeah, all of that negative thought was so crippling. I was 17 when I heard the very same message that you described from my dad saying, you know, I wanted to go to art school. And he was like, yeah, but what are you going to do for a living? And I did end up going to art school, but I had a double major in art education and psychology because I really bought it. I was like, no, I can't be an artist and make my way in the world. So how old were you when you heard that message? Oh, as young as I can remember, because my mother was an artist. And so I was surrounded with it. She was a painter and she used to have painting classes in my basement of of our house Uh, as far back as I can remember, four years old, five years old. So I was always involved. I was always intrigued. I always loved it. Uh, It was always exciting. But from the time of, you know, junior high, high school, when we start talking about, you know, know, college, which I had no idea. The only, my only criteria for college was it wasn't going to be where I grew up. 
that was my major. You know, I had no direction. I had no idea what I wanted to study. I didn't care where I went. I was I was a middle you know, C student, blah, blah, blah. And uh, art, in fact, when I started school, uh, art wasn't even one of my majors. It wasn't even one of my focus. Uh, it wasn't until, like I said, it took me seven years to graduate. So I think it was like year three or four where I had the courage to change it to glass and graduated in glass. I also went to five different colleges. You know, I mean, I was a mess. <laughs> I, just, I just said, hey, I'm not happy here. Let's go someplace else. You know, oh, this isn't working out. Let's go someplace else. You know, and, and I, was a, I was an active, you know, alcoholic. Yeah. miserable just and miserable it, it's always the place right this school oh, isn't absolutely. working for me right <laughs> it's the place it's the job friends it's everything it's never me i just got to find the right fit yeah i was just one of these pretty much generic uh lost soul that we hear about nothing really unique my mom was also an artist she was a potter and mm. what i remember about that at that age of four or five, six, is that she had one of these really big, heavy kick wheels in our downstairs. Yeah. And I used to get that thing going, jump on, hold on to the middle bar, go round and round and round and round, and then get off and be all... I think that was my first experience of getting high. Like <laughs> You get off that wheel. <laughs> Oh, that's very funny. Yeah, you know, I have to say, I, I look back on those really, really fondly, the, the classes, the oil painting classes that my mother had in the basement. She, she wasn't a teacher. We had a, we had a teacher that came in, but it was like a group of maybe six people. But I still remember the smell of the oil paint. And I still remember the looking up at the easel. That's how short I was and seeing these people paint and I thought wow this this is pretty good I, you know even back then you know four three four years old and that's how I got to glass it was my freshman year of college out in Ohio I wasn't a, an art major like I said and I'm walking down the campus in the springtime minding my own business and the glass department had moved outdoors to give an outdoor demonstration of glass blowing and I was walking by and I saw it and I still remember it it was one of those aha moments of the sparkle of the light on the clear glass as these two guys are running around with molten glass. I said, whoa, I got to learn how to do that. And then it took me another two years or like or so, I can't remember now, to change majors and change college and uh, ended up going to the University of Minnesota for glass. And that's where I graduated from. And then I tried to go for my MFA because I didn't know what else to do once I got out of college. And I went to University of Wisconsin and I lasted one semester going for my master's in fine art in glass. Because at that time, that's when I first hit my first bottom. Really. I just said, I can't do glass anymore. I have no idea what I'm doing, no idea what's going on. And I dropped out and did my usual fallback, which was working in restaurants as a waiter. And that's when I started my cartooning career, freelancing and working that's in great. restaurants. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, that, to get to today and how things have changed, like I said, it's been a very long haul. And part of the miracle, I haven't quit. Part of the miracle is that I haven't, that I'm still here. That you haven't quit quitting. <laughs> Exactly. I haven't quit quitting, you know, the perseverance, the uh, the drive, the desire, the support from people in fellowship, uh, you know, this higher power that wants me to make use of my God-given talents and these, this thinking of who am I to say no to using these talents. That's been a big motivator when someone uh, asked me about that. Uh, who am I? You know, again, that self-centeredness, self-centered fear. Who am I to say no to using these gifts? And so cartooning was a was a miracle, tremendously fantastic gift job. One of the few jobs in the country as a full-time staff cartoonist 
at a newspaper with all the benefits, medical, 401k, blah, blah, blah. And yet it was, you know, I did it for 18 years and loved it. And yet there was this still urge deep down inside me of of glass. You know, I would even go further than say urge. It sounds like a yearning. Yeah, you're right. There's a yearning. Absolutely. Great word. A drive, a passion. Because when you said that about the glass blowing outdoors, I could see it. You know, I could see through the color. and Yeah, I think we all hit that. We all find that miracle medium, whatever that may be. And it's magic. It's magic. And do you still draw? Very little. I draw for fun. Uh, Right now, there's going to be a family event. I'm going to draw a uh, congratulations card. I do stuff like that uh, on a personal level. You know, and I I don't miss it. I really don't. I'll I'll doodle all the time for myself. But in terms of doing it professionally, I have zero urge for that. And what was that moment like seeing the glass that also was the drive to get you to put whatever drugs, alcohol you were using down? Well, the art and the drugs really didn't go hand in hand. I mean, I was working at the newspaper for a while, still active without recovery. Actually, yeah, I didn't get back into glass. That's a good point until I had um, about seven, eight years of recovery in me. So at that point, I guess through the recovery, I cleared up enough and was able to uh, focus enough to want to follow through on what you really had that yearning for I had the courage and I was in a place where I was uh, I was open to what was going on within me I, the way to say it was I I was developing this intuitive sense which I was not in touch with when I was a, a drunk so I kept having this intuitive sense of like well what do I really want it what really is the next thing that I'm looking for and the glass was always there I mean I kept my tools all those years I kept some pieces of glass from the way back in college and how weird when I had lost so many other things through moving and not caring but again through recovery quieting down getting rid of a lot of distractions and uh, just being able to see more of the big picture uh, this this opportunity presented itself there was an ad, I remember the specific thing. There was an ad, I think the New York Times or something about weekend activities, and it was going to be a uh, there was going to be a bus tour to take you to this public access glass studio, and there was going to be a demonstration by this well-known person. And I thought, huh, I think I'm going to do that. So here's this. Let's just remember this. This is this was pretty amazing. Again, about how higher power works. Take the train into Manhattan. I get on this little shuttle van that takes us out to Brooklyn. I get out. I start seeing this demonstration by this guy, and there's maybe 50 people watching. Sure enough, around the corner comes a guy I went to college with when I went from that MFA in one semester at Madison, Wisconsin. There was a guy at that at the Brooklyn studio who was there with school with me. He comes around the corner and he goes, David. I go, John. He goes, uh, hey. And I hadn't seen him in years. He goes, you still doing glass? I go, nope. He goes, well, you are now. He says, I'm teaching a class here at Brooklyn and you're going to sign up for it. And that was the start. Oh, I love that. <laughs> right? So talk about serendipity, following your gut, being in the right place. And that was one of the, a, a clear sign, as we say to here, uh, that uh, I'm in the right place at the right time. You know, that was a fascinating story and I'm really glad you told it. And the question that I was asking was, was there a moment of clarity when you knew you had to put alcohol down? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to share that one, David? Of course. (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny. It it came slowly. I never thought I was an alcoholic. I never, ever, ever. And I never tried to stop because of that. So what got me to go to a meeting were two things. One was my wife and one was my therapist. My wife was starting to complain about my drinking 
And uh, so they got to do something about it. And so I thought it was my parents' problems, you know, an Alan on issues. So I go to a therapist to talk about my parents. And the first day, my first session, this woman says, uh, well, I can't treat you unless you stop drinking. So she gets my history. I go, no, 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 you don't understand. It was my parents, it's not me. She goes, no. And so fortunately, you know, they call it the gift of desperation. I was miserable enough to take her suggestion because I didn't want I wanted help. So I go to my first meeting and uh, I didn't identify as an alcoholic because I didn't think I would, but I was desperate enough. I knew my life was unmanageable. And at that first meeting, I heard what I had to hear. I just couldn't. It was in February, uh, cold in this warm basement of a church. And I left there saying, well, look, you know, I'm not an alcoholic, but I'll stop if I can get what these people have. And uh, part of the deal, of course, was to keep coming back to meetings. So in, in the process of coming back to meetings, that's when I learned and realized that I was an alcoholic. And that's why I have to continue to not drink. And that was back in 1986. So that was the moment. It, you know, it came to me kind of through the back door. And pretty, pretty remarkable. It is remarkable. Started. And it, it is also remarkable that most addicts and alcoholics that I've talked to do not start out believing that they are addicted at all. Is that you know, right? And, and I, I will put myself in that group. You know, I thought I'm the child of an alcoholic. I married an alcoholic. I, you know, I've got all the... I'm a co-alcoholic. I'm maybe I'm a periodic alcoholic because of the style of my drinking. Right. <laughs> you know, right. it occurred to me one day while in meetings, it occurred to me that I'm like, you know, all those pre-alcoholic, um, periodic alcoholic, co-alcoholic, child of the alcohol, they all have alcohol in the, in the description. You know, maybe it's time. Like there was yeah. a, a very, I, I think of it as in young sobriety, there was a saying that if it waddles yeah. like a duck, quacks like a duck, looks like a duck, maybe it's a duck. And I think exactly. that whole expression is because most of us don't believe it until it's our time. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it takes, you know, it happens what happens. It doesn't happen for everybody. Not you know, everybody and everybody gets. else could know it and say something and you can still be like, oh, no. I did that with ADHD too. You know, I had friends telling exactly. me, Nancy, you should check this out. I'm like, no, no, that's not. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> That's not going to happen. And and then my um, son's father passed away and I saw his behavior being like a ADHD explosion. And I decided to bring him in for an evaluation. Uh, he was only five at the time. And the psychologist that evaluated my son with ADD, I was I was concerned that he might have the bipolar disease that his dad had. Mm, and yeah. um, and so the the psychologist said, no, he takes after his mother. He takes after you. <laughs> like, I, I think he has ADHD to beat the band, but he takes after his mother. And I'm like, that's the first time that I was like, all right, maybe I'll read about that. Like, that's right, right. My friends could tell me I could dismiss it, but the psychologist, I was like, yeah, I'll read about it. And then I was like, oh my gosh, that explains so much yeah, from such right. a young age. Specifically, why did I want to sit in the front of the classroom and get yelled at for doodling or looking out the window and have to move to the back, but then I couldn't get the information? There you go. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. It all come, the awareness comes in a lot of different ways. You know, it certainly does. And, and it hit our bottom, my bottom. Uh, you know, I, it's a common thing, and I always say, well, you know, why didn't it happen early? Couldn't I have gotten this when I was eighteen instead of thirty-four? Right. But it all, right. you know, takes what it takes. There's really no other explanation for it. Yeah. And I'm yeah. just glad. I'm I'm glad it happened, and I'm glad you know I'm still around. Like I say, things keep getting better. And are there any specific messages before we conclude? that you want to reach listeners with? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure if there's any, if there's one thing. I think the overriding is uh, don't stop, you know, don't quit. You know, they say don't quit five minutes before the miracle. Uh, and in terms of being a full-time artist and making a living at an artist, as an artist, yes, yes, it's possible. Of course, there are people doing it, so why not you? That was one of the great, one of the great questions someone asked me, you know, other people are doing it, so why not you? It was just like, well, you don't understand. You don't know, why not you? So I think that's, that's really, you know, don't don't give up hope. Uh, definitely, if you're in recovery, stay there and stay on the bright side. So one of the good things I've heard is that my addiction wants me to spiral down, whereas recovery and my higher power wants me to spiral up. And that's how I want to stay. That's the way I want to keep, you know, positive, up, look for the miracles, appreciation, gratitude, you know, stay on that side of the of the world. Stay on the bright side. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. You know, I heard a podcast where the guest was this Dr. Korb, and he wrote a book called The Upward Spiral. And it's a lot of things that we do in recovery. It also adds sleep hygiene and all kinds of, you know, uh, things that will help you stay on the bright side. Uh, Mm -hmm. Affirmations Mm -hmm. and gratitude and techniques of manifesting what you want in life it's like it's all so good yeah because you know my default mode is negativity and misery <laughs> you know that's what you know that's how i grew up that's what i that's what i was always used to and that and without you know going to meetings and doing all the things necessary talking with people sponsor sponsoring i'll fall back to that it's it's not my opinion it's a fact i've seen it right. countless countless and it's so. the comparison between that irritable restless and discontent or happy joyous and free yeah. which one do you want you know i, I heard a, a therapist also describe idea that when you're using you allow yourself to be used and you use other people we're selfish and when you're in recovery you're willing to give and receive yeah it's beautiful and you were even talking about receiving from the higher power the gifts that you have in life and being able to then share and generate them with others i have a, a last question which is do you teach too yeah, I, I don't do it as much anymore by choice because I'm, I'm tired, you know, and I want, <laughs> and I want to spend energy on my own work. But uh, yes, when I had my own studio, uh, I would teach all the time. That was a major part of my income. And then when I started, uh, co-started this new studio at Waterfall Arts in Maine, I was teaching all the time because we didn't have anybody else doing it. And I love, I love, I love uh, sharing the excitement of working with glass with other people and giving people the opportunity to to experience what I see as the magic and other people see as the magic of such a such a wonderful material, this molten hot stuff that you're controlling. So the, the answer is yes, I teach, but now on a very limited day. All right. Thank you so much for being with us today, David. Yeah, this is great, Nancy. It's really great to talk to you. It's good, good, good questions, good discussion, uh, stuff that I hadn't, you know, formally always thought about in a conversation tone so thank you you're welcome do you suppose we'll hear stories about addiction we might oh stories about recovery too 
Mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Are you a fan of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores podcast? Do you want to support the show and show off your love for LTGW? Look no further than You Can Do Merch Store, brought to you by host and creator Nancy Adair. 